One of my favorite musicals of all time is Les Miserables, and I can't get through a single performance without crying. So in it, there's a young man named Marius who faces what we call today survivor's guilt. He's lost all his friends at the Paris uprising of 1832 and anti-monarchist insurrection. In this aftermath, Marius sits alone at the small cafe where they used to enjoy each other's company. He begins a song entitled, Empty Chairs at Empty Tables. Some of the lyrics go like this, quote, there's a grief that can't be spoken. There's a pain goes on and on. Empty chairs at empty tables. Now my friends are dead and gone. Here they talked of revolution. Here was they lit the flame. Here they sang about tomorrow. And tomorrow never came. All my friends, my friends, forgive me that I live and you are gone. There's a grief that can't be spoken. There's a pain that goes on and on. In quote. And while this work is historical fiction, there's a truth captured here. Universal is the worldly sorrow of our fallen humanity. Death ruins everything. As we bury our dead, we understand profoundly and deeply, in Adam we die. By the one man's offense, offense, death reigned through the one, and sin reigned in death. But even as we shed tears at funerals or listen to moving tunes, we know that as Christians, among ourselves, we do not sorrow as others who have no hope. First Peter 1.3 reminds us of that hope we have. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is why we meet on Sundays, the first day of the week. It is indeed the Lord's Day, the day Jesus became the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. Now today we return to that eventful Resurrection Sunday 2,000 years ago, just as we revisited that Good Friday 2,000 years ago. Now allow me to bridge the gap there. The best way to start that would be to listen to the Lord himself in Matthew 12, 38 to 40. It says there, this is a debate between Jesus and, and his enemies. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, Jesus died around 3 p.m. Friday and rose from the dead very early Sunday morning. Now, that does not add up to 24 times 372 hours. But keep in mind that the Jews then did not keep time like the way we do today. There's a rabbi named Eleazar ben Azariah who's often cited in support of this, quote, a day and a night makes a whole day, and a portion of a whole day is reckoned as a whole day. End quote. And add to that how, unlike our custom, the day began at sundown. So Christ was indeed 
dead for three days. He died Friday, spent Saturday in the grave, and rose on Sunday. Now here's a quick comment about Saturday from Matthew. That day the chief priests and the Pharisees asked Pilate so that the tomb of Jesus be made secure. They feared that the disciples would come and steal the body and then deceive others about the resurrection. So the stone covering the door was sealed and the guards kept watch. Besides that, not much else took place on the Sabbath, at least in the earthly realm. So we now start a new week on Sunday. Now, I turn to today's, uh, before I turn to today's text, I'm going to give a summary of what took place that morning so we get the big picture because there's a lot of things going on here, a lot of people running back and forth. The Gospels agree that central to the resurrection accounts are the women disciples of Jesus. They knew the precise location of the tomb. They saw Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus rushing to prepare the body and lay it to rest there. They prepared some spices and fragrant oils Friday and bought more Sunday morning. They were eager to improve on the work of the men. So they were up early. They were like the virtuous wife in Proverbs 31.15. They rise while it is yet night. But before they arrive at the tomb, a world-transforming event took place. The earth shook and heaven opened. An angel of the Lord descended, rolled away the stone from the entrance and sat on it. The guards were terrified. They became like dead men. But once they came to their senses, they fled the scene. Some of them reported what happened to the chief priests. They couldn't go to their superiors because they would face certain death for abandoning their post. The enemies of Jesus huddle up and concoct a plan to pervert the truth. They bribed the soldiers with wealth so that they'd spread this lie. While they slept by night, the disciples came and stole the body. If Pilate starts questioning them, they would pay him as well. Imagine an investigative reporter of today digging into this. He or she would have a field day talking with these guys, poking at the holes. So you're telling me that a bunch of trained and armed Roman soldiers, most likely 16 of them in total, couldn't catch some grave robbers. That four of them staying awake during a night watch all dozed off at the same time. A bunch of Galilean Jews all of a sudden mustered up the courage to break the Roman seal over the tomb. And they found the strength to push the large stone placed over the entrance without making any noise to wake up those soldiers. And we can have another sermon or Bible study on this ridiculous lie, but... Let's move forward with the Sunday morning events. So Jesus got up, got out of the linen clothes, took off the handkerchief over his head, and wore something more appropriate for the occasion. What does one wear to his own resurrection? Now, all I know is this. Christ has put on incorruption. He has put on immortality. He's ready to be declared the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. 
he exits the tomb and moves away from it, but stays nearby. I think this is when he instructs the angels, uh, one that opened the entrance and another angel, and they are to stand by and be ready as heavenly witnesses of the resurrection. Now, as for the earthly witnesses of the resurrection, putting together the next series of events that morning is more challenging. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. I feel like I did this most of the week, just trying to put all the gospel accounts together, order of events. So here's my go at it. And I kind of created like a four-part outline. First, think of number one. There's one leading woman, Mary Magdalene. Secondly, think of number two. There are two men, Peter and John. Thirdly, think of number three. There's one group of women who encounter two angels, adding up to three. Being a little gratuitous here. But fourthly, think of number four. There's Mary Magdalene returning to the tomb, meeting the two angels, becoming the first to meet the resurrected Jesus. That adds to four. So here we go. Again, this is the big picture. The resurrection took place, but it's still quite early, still dark. The women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joanna, Salome, and maybe one or a few, few more like Susanna, were still on the way to the garden tomb. I'm sure that they were walking with resolve and purpose, determined to anoint the body of their beloved Lord. They did a lot of preparation, but they did overlook one matter. In Mark 16.3, they wonder among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? We already know the answer. It's the ministering spirit sent forth to minister to those who inherit salvation. But of course, they didn't know that right then. They, came, they come to the tomb, and they find it open and empty. I would think that these women didn't go in right away. Naturally, they'd be scared at the sight, at the very least suspicious. They move away from the location and try to figure out what to do next. They have Mary Magdalene, probably the youngest and fittest of them, go get Peter and John. She runs and tell them in, tells them in John 20, verse 2, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Peter and John start a foot race to have a look themselves at the empty tomb and the clothes left behind. They return home as Mary Magdalene made her way back to the tomb at a slower pace. Meanwhile, the other women, minus Mary Magdalene, find courage to take a closer look themselves inside the tomb. Up to this point, they kept some distance. Peter and John told them it's empty and left. Now it's their turn to play detective. Upon entering, they're greatly perplexed. But then they were alarmed at the sight of two celestial figures in shining garments and long white robes. It was so dreadful that they bowed their faces to the ground. But these angels assured them with their words. I'm weaving together the gospel accounts now. They say, do not be afraid, do not be alarmed, for I know that you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Why do you seek the living among the dead? 
He is not here, for he is risen. He is not here, but is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. See the place where they laid him. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And the third day rise again. Go quickly and tell his disciples and Peter that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you, Behold, I have told you. The women left the tomb quickly and fled trembling and amazed. Initially, they were too afraid to say anything to anyone. But soon that fear turned into great joy as they remembered Christ's words. And they told the men what happened. Next, we go back to Mary Magdalene as she arrives back to the tomb. She sees no one around. Peter and John are gone. The women are gone. And Mary missed the resurrection announcement of the angels. She's alone, grieving, tired, and confused. And she breaks down. Here's what happens next in John 20, 11 to 18. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And so that's how Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene after his resurrection. And there will be other appearances in Luke 24 and in other Gospels. But today we stay in Luke 24, 1 through 12. And my main point here is that the empty tomb is full of meaning. As I read it in three parts, I'll draw three principles, and let me give all three at once now. First, God uses weak but faithful vessels. That's in verses 1 to 3. God uses weak but faithful vessels. Secondly, God reminds us through his word, the gospel. God reminds us through his word, the gospel. That's Verses 4 to 8. Thirdly, God speaks the truth, though it's not received well. God speaks the truth, though it's not received well. That's verses 9 through 12. So first, God uses weak but faithful vessels. So here's Luke 24, 1 to 3. If you want to follow along, it's in page 741 of your pew Bible. Luke 24, 1 to 3. 
Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. They, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So let's first identify the subject in verse 1, they and certain other women with them. We saw in chapter 23, verse 49 and verse 55, that these women had come with Jesus from Galilee, where they were actively ministering to Jesus. Later in chapter 24, verse 10, they're specifically named as Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, who was also there according to Mark. Here's a quick reintroduction, reintroduction to a few of them. Back to the Galilean ministry, back in chapter 8, verse 1 to 3, it says there that besides the 12 apostles, there were certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others who provided for him from their substance. Now, Mary was called Magdalene because she's from the town of Magdala. It's not her last name. It's like Jesus the Nazarene or Joseph of Arimathea. It helped others distinguish her with her common name from other Marys in the Christian community, and there's a lot of them. She had a dark, demonic past before meeting Jesus. My guess is that she's relatively younger than others and unmarried. As for Joanna, we don't know her exact problem before coming to Christ. We do know she's the wife of an upper-class nobleman named Chusa. And there was at least one other Mary there at the tomb besides Magdalene. She's distinguished as Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph. We don't know whether she's among those who were healed of evil spirits and infirmities. But what united these women was their determination to follow Jesus and help him with their material resources. Though they did not hold the title of apostle, they were just as loyal to Christ as any others. You could say they were even more loyal. And that certainly seems to be the case that Sunday morning. The men of Christ, relatively stronger, proud, and passionate, they failed to stay loyal to Jesus. At one point, the twelve enjoyed power and authority over all demons and cured diseases, preached the kingdom of God, and healed the sick. Now one has betrayed Jesus. The twelve is down to eleven. They all initially fled the arrest. Peter denied Christ three times. Much was given, much committed to these men, but they failed. They could not meet the requirements. It was too much of an ask. Not as much was required or asked of the women, but what responsibilities they had, they fulfilled as faithful vessels. Some of them stood by the cross when all but John were gone, and others still in the vicinity. They were at the tomb Friday, as they observed how the body was laid to rest. And so it's no surprise they were at the tomb Sunday. You also see how Luke emphasizes their dedication. 
he repeats the mention of the spices they prepared in the last verse of chapter 23 and the first verse of chapter 24. Because of their faithfulness, they became the first to see the resurrected Lord. Though they were weak, God chose them to shame those mighty. As they honored Jesus, they became vessels of honor, sanctified and useful for the master. Now let's see what happens next in verses 4 to 9. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Again, the point here, God reminds us through his word, the gospel. That's the point of emphasis in these verses. So look at the second half of verse 6, the command of the angels. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee. And then we find in verse 8, the the simple and yet profound response. And they remembered his words. Sandwich between the imperative and the indicative are the words Jesus himself spoke. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of simple men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. That's a great way to summarize the central truths of the gospel. Like these women, we need reminders of them. So let's look at Christ's words in verse 7 in three parts, separated by the commas there. First, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. This is a must because we're all sinners. We've broken God's laws, sinned in thought, word, and deed. We've coveted, murdered with hate, committed adultery with our eyes, blasphemed God's name. We also fail to complete the task God demands from us, So, as 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ had to suffer for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The Son of Man was delivered into the hands of sinful men so that we would not fall into the hands of the living God. That's why we see next, Jesus continues by saying he had to suffer and be crucified. At the cross, he took on himself the eternal penalty of sin, separation from God. Hell itself in our place. He became our substitute and paid the price in full. He died and he was buried that Friday. But it was a good Friday because of the resurrection Sunday. Jesus said, and the third day rise again. After appearing to his disciples, He ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. Until then, the call of response is clear. As Acts 17, 30-31 warns us, truly God commands everyone everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. But if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Repenting means turning away from all your works, good and bad, forsaking self-pleasure and self-righteousness. Then we turn to Jesus, trusting in him alone for heaven. We cannot earn it or deserve it. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the good news, the gospel. God reminds us of it through his word. Now there's a greater purpose behind this reminder. It's not merely for our own benefit. He wants us to share it with others. And the woman did just that. As they were told, they did go and tell. So let's go on to verses 9 to 12, where we see that God speaks the truth, though it's not received well. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now God had equipped these women to share the good news with those who would, on paper, be the most likely to receive it. Yet, they did not receive it well. And not receive well is actually an understatement. The report of these women sounded like nonsense to them. Can you believe that the apostles didn't believe at first? Now, these men will be pillars and foundation of the church, yet they cannot see that the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. They sound more like liberal, cynical, anti-supernaturalists of today than ambassadors and martyrs. Now, we'll give Peter and John some credit as they did run towards the empty tomb. But this initial reaction of disbelief is disappointing. Perhaps these women were starting to feel discouraged. One by one, they locate their brothers in Christ But one by one, they dismissed them and their report. Maybe they were starting to wane in their enthusiasm. That happens sometimes when we share the gospel and they just keep rejecting you, keep dismissing you. What's going to get them to complete their task? So we see in Matthew 28, 9 through 10, what gives them that final push. And it says there, And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So this is now the second time Jesus Jesus was seen after the resurrection. It was first to Mary Magdalene. Now he meets the other woman disciples. Again, 
What's going to push them to finish their task? It's something better than meeting angels. It's meeting the resurrected Christ. Their ears hear his voice. Their eyes behold his face. Their hands touch him. They bow their knees to worship him. Can you imagine their joy? If, as Peter says later, those who do not see him yet believe, rejoice with joy inexpressible, how much more is the joy of these ladies who have seen him and believed? So here they are as examples for us. God speaks the truth, though it's not received well, and we must be faithful as his mouthpieces. Sure, most will dismiss us and our words, but there may be a few like Peter and John. One or two may start looking into the empty tomb, and maybe some will find that it's full of meaning. As application, let's ask the Lord for courage to talk to one unsaved or unchurched person this calendar year about the resurrection of Jesus. Not only God loves you and stopping there, tell them the truth of Romans 4.25. God's son was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now, this motivation to share the good news, it does not come from your flesh. It's not mainly about having an outgoing personality. The pastor, the elder, the teachers, we cannot force you to evangelize. That desire must come arise from a genuine, joyful worship of our resurrected Lord Jesus. As we close, let's not only remember the word of Christ, the gospel, but also let it dwell in us richly. His glories now we sing. We sing of the glories that follow the sufferings of Christ. Let's crown him the Lord of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that life has meaning. Resurrection has changed everything. Lord, we pray that that the enthusiasm to live for you will be grounded in the gospel as we serve you, as we remember your words, as we tell others. Pray that you give us opportunities this week or this month, or this year, to live for your glory by speaking the truth. And Lord, there will be times when just having a bad day, having a bad week, or just we may come home discouraged from work, or just burdens of life, leading a family, just all these things. Every time we have those terrible days, help us to remember this one day this day of resurrection, how it points to our own resurrection someday in the future. We thank you for that truth. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.